Welcome to season four of Copy Room Conversations, releasing imperfection and normalizing joy. My intention in sharing these precious humans with you is to inspire you to let go, let down, and remember that joy is love without inhibition, and love without inhibition is joy. With joy, we will not only survive, we will remember what it is to thrive, and so will our kids. Big thanks to our sponsor, Dirt Path Publishing, a company dedicated to publishing works with social impact. They are also the publisher of my book, Nothing's Missing, released earlier this year. For more information about my book, visit nicoleluciani.com. And for more information on Dirt Path Publishing, visit dirtpathpublishing.com. In the meantime, and always, welcome to the copy room. A disclaimer here. Carlos Cabana is one of my favorite human beings on earth. He is kind and smart and funny. He loves with his whole heart, come what may. His joy does not run loud like Peter's and Ashley's. It runs quiet like a strong current under still water. It's the sparkle in his eyes, the turned up corner of his shy smile, the feeling you get when you walk into the classroom and feel ready to be brave because you know your teacher has created a space for you to thrive as if it was your birthright. And it is, it is your birthright to thrive. Every day I worked with Carlos, I was reminded by his actions, his words, and his energy that we are all both worthy and capable of vulnerably stepping into our own light to learn and laugh and be loved. I don't know what I would do if it wasn't teaching Mm -hmm. because um, it brings me so much joy and such clarity about why I'm on this earth and Mm. um, who I am and what I can do Mm -hmm. that, and, and I'm naturally an introvert. So if I didn't have that, that place to spread my wings a little bit and, and be bigger than just my internal self, I would probably like sit in the garden all day and read or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where I'm at right now. It's so interesting because I I, um, present as an extrovert, but I'm deeply introverted. Mm -hmm. Now, there's some your backstory I don't know a lot of. So I'm really curious about this question. When you think about growing up, where did you grow up? How did you grow up? And how did that inform the kind of teacher that you eventually chose to become? Um, so the real answer is I grew up at San Lorenzo mm. um, in lots of different ways. Uh, I was born in Argentina. My family came here when I was three and a half, and I never lived anywhere for more than three and a half years until we moved out here and I uh, started college. Wow. Um, so I never had um, a community, a place to call home. And even at college, I lived in different places enough that it was the beginnings of one, but not really. We were all there for a purpose. And so San Lorenzo was the first place that became home um, in a more permanent way, really permanent, I thought. Mm -hmm. Um, And the place where I found myself um, in ways that, in in an anchoring way that a hometown or a place where my family is might otherwise do. Yeah, yeah. What was your experience like in school? Do you remember it being a good place or like something brought you to teaching, right? 
Uh, yeah, I always enjoyed school. I loved learning. I read voraciously. Um, I did well in school once I learned English. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be a teacher since I was in middle school, but I couldn't tell you why. And I certainly had no clarity about what it meant to be in middle school and in high school. I really wanted to be an English teacher. Um, mm. But that's because I thought that that meant sitting cross-legged on the table and talking about the romantic poets and Shakespeare with kids all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I certainly had no idea of the challenges or the joys that teaching would bring. I had no idea what it meant to be not just in a room with a group of kids, but but finding ways to really connect with a group of kids. Like that has been in the same way that San Lorenzo was a very healing experience for me because it became my community um, because it let me teach immigrant kids. Mm-hmm. Teaching itself was really healing for me um, because it, it let me explore questions about who I am and what my place in the world would be. And I had no idea that that's what teaching would be when I started. I honestly couldn't tell you why I wanted to be a teacher. I have no, mm. no clue. It's just something drew you and you listened. Well, I didn't at first because uh, my parents thought that I uh, should do something bigger. And the people around me also were flabbergasted that that's what I would want to do. My favorite high school teacher um, gave me a top 10 list of reasons to not become a teacher. Oh, my God. Um, something that years later he was shocked at. It. Um, but it's actually really useful because it, I, I paid attention to that list. And it, it helped me make some decisions about what to do that I wouldn't have otherwise made. So I took it as a how-to, not a don't do it. That's amazing. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah, it, I feel very similar to San Lorenzo um, in the healing aspect of it, in the mm-hmm. home aspect of it. Mm-hmm. I, it makes me wonder if we were all so close and it was such a special place because we were all a little bit um, lonely, you know, and looking mm. for looking for a tribe of people to call mm. home. I wonder about this... Um, orientation to learning too because when I think about us in those years we really were very curious right I think we all saw our our kids as our teachers I mean certainly when I think about how to teach they taught me how to teach but also when I think about how to human right they taught Mm -hmm. me how to human um and 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 I, I yes and still do um I wonder when you think back on those those years, what a lesson was that maybe was pretty hard for you to learn that you finally did because um, because of the student or maybe because of just a cumulative effect of being a teacher. It'd be easier to ask me what things I didn't have to learn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. sure. I've often thought about how kids hold up this very unique mirror to us yeah. um, and that, that no one else does. I mean, maybe... I don't have kids, so I don't know about that, but mm-hmm. I suspect it's different just because our students aren't our kids. Right, exactly. Um, and that, that mirror forces us to look at and address who we are in some very fundamental ways, and including uh, how we respond to some of the negative internal monologues that we have playing in the background. The kids will see all of that and call us out on it, even if they don't understand where it's coming from. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was definitely the case for me. Um, 
it's why I'm so supremely grateful that I met Susan Baskin. Um, she's the, the reason I came to San Lorenzo in the first place. When I first came to visit, I was taken to her classroom and it was stepping like stepping through a door to a secret garden. It was completely wow. different in there than in the world around me um, because kids were working on in stations. And so there are kids up around the room all, uh, all over the place. Some kids were at their tables. Some kids were by the stations. Um, it wasn't a quiet classroom by any means, but it wasn't boisterous. It was academic and light and friendly and non-authoritarian. Mm -hmm. And Susan was just circulating and listening and asking questions and very frequently uh, uh, radiating her like, big, warm smile, enjoy what a kid had figured out or a question they had or something they'd done. It was an entirely different way of being in a room with a group of kids than I'd seen either in my own experience or certainly in my student teaching. Like I student taught with a man who uh, threw chalk at kids when he thought they weren't paying attention. Oh my God. Um, oh my God. Yeah. And so I knew that whatever that was, I had to learn it. And yeah. I didn't have any place to hang that thought on, except it was immediately compelling. Um, and I, what I came to see, especially from sharing a classroom with Susan, was that she is the most authentically and completely strengths-based person I've ever met. It's how she engages with kids, how she engages with other adults. Every time she's engaged in a conversation with someone, I, I think, I haven't, actually I haven't asked her about this, but uh, I think that in her head, she's not even asking herself, it's natural to think about like this thing that I'm hearing, what does it say about this person's strengths so that her contribution to the conversation is to illuminate what's going on from that perspective. And that is so different from how I grew up and what I thought it meant to teach. Um, and in fact, um, what I thought it meant, to, it meant to be a human. Mm -hmm. I knew that it, it was the me I wanted to be, but I had no way of knowing how to get started. And so I've had to work hard at that for a long, long time. It's still what I work on. Um, it's much more automatic for me now than it used to be, but it's still something I find myself slipping away from, especially when I'm tired or frustrated. Mm -hmm. or, um, and I have to remind myself of what would Susan do. Mm -hmm. um, so I will forever be grateful for her mentorship, not just as a teacher, but as a, a human. After 31 years, I get to hear from a lot of kids, especially through mm -hmm. social media, and the, the most common comment that I hear from students is that I believed in them and that I helped them believe in themselves. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I do that actively sometimes, but mostly I'm just mirroring back what I see mm -hmm. um, and, and thinking about like, what does this kid need from me right now? And what can I give them based on what's, ha what's happening in front of me? And I, I didn't know how to do any of that. I didn't even know it was a thing. I didn't know it was part of teaching, part of how I needed to grow as a human. Mm -hmm. I certainly didn't know it would bring me as much joy as it's brought me. Yeah, yeah. That's so beautiful. I mean, I know I've told you a million times that if you were my math teacher, I would have become a math teacher. Um, I just, I, I, well, no, I'm glad no, I wasn't. no shade on Mr. Lathleen because he was a good man. He's a wonderful man. <laughs> man and and so when I think about having a math teacher like you or any of the other wonderful colleagues that we had 
what an extraordinary experience for our kids. I mean, I talk about you guys all the time. When I would get those kids in 11th grade and they would be so good working as a team, Mm-hmm. You just instilled that in them. All of you did. And what an extraordinary opportunity for the rest of us to reap those benefits. It was beautiful. Yeah, thank you. And I would, I don't see it as we instilled it in them. I think that that's, mm. that's why I work with kids and not with adults. I think yeah. kids have in them um, fundamentally humanitarian sensibilities and values that school replaces with competition and uh, worry over who's good enough or who's good, period. We beat out of kids, many kids, um, a sense of community and social justice and empathy and taking care of each other. When really those are the things that they bring in with them and that we need to celebrate and make central to learning. Yeah, yeah, I could not agree with you more. Um, I think about schools like a puzzle, right? And part of why I think we're struggling, I mean, outside of the systemic issues that they were built this way, right? Is that there's a lot of us as teachers who are afraid to be wholly ourselves, to really bring our unique piece of the puzzle to the table. And so we're so busy trying to fit what everybody thinks we should be that we're not being our actual piece, right? And so that's why we're not fitting together as a community in service to our kids. And so I like to ask teachers what they think their piece is. You know, what do you care about? There's this great Indigo Girls song, um, if you have a care in the world, you have a gift to give. What do you feel like you care about so much that it's your gift that you bring to a school? Well, I I want to bring the fruits of being strength-based to any group. I want the people around me to feel like I see them, I see their strengths and appreciate that and um, that I see the strengths of the group um, and will name that to help us claim an identity. I think I'm often put in a leadership role maybe because of that, but honestly I'm a much better team member than I am a team leader. And so I, I try to recast what it means to be a leader to um to try to be more of a team member mm-hmm. the one area where i think i do have um some leadership to bring that I, i'm sure it doesn't work for everybody is that i i'm ambitious and i want to look for the the big group worthy task that my colleagues and i can take on mm-hmm. that will make us a, a school big for kids but also big for us mm-hmm. that will help us feel like we're um, doing something, uh, to use the word that was important at uh, one of the schools I was at, Life Academy, something that's transformative to ki- mm-hmm. for kids um, because it's that transformation that if we do it right, will address patterns of injustice mm-hmm. um, in our society, but in a very human, like, stu- individual student-centric way. Mm-hmm. An empowering way, right? Not a savior yeah, exactly. way. I think that's exactly. that's a really important distinction. Oh yeah, absolutely. And thank you for clarifying. And it's the reverse. Like I got the the big group worthy task that we take on has to involve asking kids to do something scary, to do something that is bigger than they think they're capable of, so that when they do it, they carry with them this this knowledge that they've accomplished something. And same for us. Yeah, same for us, exactly. When when uh, Lisa and Anna were on 
that was kind of the ethic that that Anna was talking about is that Lisa and others in your department um, helped her be more than she thought she could be mm-hmm. by challenging her and uh, recognizing her assets and leaning into those assets and supporting them the entire way. But like, no, you will not settle. Um, yeah. And and that's that's an extraordinary thing, especially when I think about through math. What a incredible vehicle that is. Um, that's right. Different than history, I think, for me, because history is like an uncovering of stories and uncovering of my humanity and uncovering. Mm. It, it doesn't have the same, like, look at what I did, like, it, like math does. And I think that makes it really special. I, I agree. Um, although I would say math uncovers our humanity in a different way in the sense that because our society builds it as something that some people can do and other people can't and that we can uh-huh. rank and, and sort people into a, uh, an orderly spectrum of who's good and who isn't uh-huh. when we do it in order to undermine all of that we have to we have to do it based on kids inherent humanity both their um, the things they don't un- understand and aren't able to do yet and their capacity to overcome those obstacles with effort and risk-taking and empathy and community. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't happen purely with uh, clever ways of teaching. It happens right. through um, through the classroom community. Yeah. Well, and, and two, it's interesting because my work mostly as of late has been in culturally responsive teaching. You're leaning into the cultural assets of many of our immigrant kids of Mm -hmm. interdependence and collaboration and uh, we before me, right? Um, Things that schools don't typically value. You're leaning into those. And because so many of our kids come with that gift, those gifts, we can really use them for such greatness and 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 that's like the essence of what i try to do in my work right now is to say let's put school culture to the side and let's look at who our kids are as humans in all of their Mm -hmm. cultural identities and Mm -hmm. what gifts they bring with them so that we can lean in there instead of beating them over the head with school culture that may not resonate with who they are as human beings yeah yeah So when I think about school culture, it's a lot of shoulds, right? A lot of like, you should do this. You should be this. You should. And I, and I really want to take this season and think about um, dismantling that mantle of perfectionism and really just liberating our kids. And I think that joy is one of the most liberating agents there is. And mm-hmm. so I wonder how... Because you're a serious guy, but you also have this um, playfulness about you, especially with children. That is such a delight when you let that down and let yourself be that guy. Thank you, Nicole. I wonder how that's come for you. Has that been kind of a natural thing if you had to work toward letting go of all of the conditioning and, and just being with our kids? Like Our kids are so liberated with you. And so I wonder what that is. What do you think about that? A lot of that for me is just gratitude. It's just finding how much I've learned from being with kids and how they help me not have to hide the BS. I'm just happier when 
we're laughing together or yeah. there's some shenanigan that's going on, whether they're <laughs> pulling it on me or I'm pulling it on them. Uh-huh. Um, it's, it's how, like, it's how they lead their lives in the hallways, right? They're yes. engaged in laughter and play. And, um, so why should it be different in the classroom? Why should it be different with their teacher? Um, and I, um, one of my other mentors, Gary Saluda, who taught middle, middle school for a long time, said that um, in his survey, like beginning of the year surveys of kid, the kids, the number one question they always had um, was, is my teacher mean? Oh. And I think that that's not just true of middle school kids. Yes. Um, yes. The kids want a classroom, not just where they feel like they belong, but where they feel like they connect with and feel at ease with, and, with the teacher. Um, and for some kids, that's around humor and play. For other kids, it's around being seen and appreciated um, or held and, and um, supported. Mm-hmm. And that's part of why, I mean, to be entirely honest, um, I didn't originally want to be a math teacher. I'm not especially in love with math. I don't do math in my spare time. Like, <laughs> it's not the source of my passion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't do any of the math versions of Wordle because I find them boring. <laughs> um, so that's not the source of my engagement with kids. It's mm-hmm. the potential for kids being successful in my classroom and therefore feeling like they have the capacity to be successful at anything. Mm-hmm. That um, That's my stock and trade. And so tell me about the role that joy plays, because I love you. You post little funny stories about shenanigans that happen with your kids all the time. And I just it's my very favorite thing. So how do you allow kids to know that joy is central to you and your way of being in your classroom? Is it just it's just the way things roll? Is it a natural kind of evolution that happens? Because when kids walk in, they're usually a little guarded. That's right. right. Yeah. And so the first day of school, like I, I, I don't go over rules or procedures or I, I've never written a syllabus really because I don't know what they're for. But I, even mm-hmm. if I have when I have to, I, <laughs> I, I just write a letter to kids and call it my syllabus. But I don't go over that either. Um, we just do some math together. And mm. I do what I saw Susan do all those years ago. I circulate and try to like I don't have her smile, but. I, I know how to um, infuse my voice with conviction and being proud of them or impressed by them. Mm-hmm. And then I also find some way to like, who's the kid I'm going to tease, right? Like who's the kid that yeah. looks like a, a scamp <laughs> who I'm going to, because that sets a tone immediately as well. Like kids pay attention to the fact that, oh, on the first day of school, their teacher messed with some kid and the kid <laughs> laughed or messed back or, yeah. but also uh, I want to put kids in the position of taking risks and um, both to normalize that sometimes they're going to be up in front of their peers and not know what to do, and that's perfectly okay. There's nothing wrong with them. It's not like they shouldn't know it necessarily. Um, and their peers will support them. Um, and also so that I have a chance to give kids public feedback about what they've done that I respect and value. Mm. Um, so that to the extent that they've associated being successful in school, or especially in math, with being fast or using fancy vocabulary, fancy notation, or getting the answer mentally, or all that crap that people mm-hmm. 
think is doing mathematics mm -hmm. that I can undermine that um, actively and publicly in the moment by appreciating what a student has done. You know, that's one of my very favorite things I've learned from Geetha, um, mm -hmm. our friend Geetha, who I worked with at Stanford and was at San Lorenzo for a couple of years, assigning competency yeah. to things that are worthy of highlighting. And those are not necessarily all those things that you just named off. I, I learned so much from her watching her mm -hmm. do PD because like the notion of assigning competency for struggle, assigning competency for um, asking questions, right? Like it's like the most obvious thing in the world, but what an extraordinary thing. And especially because she made me do the math and I have a lot of math anxiety. Um, I felt like, oh, maybe I could do math. You know, she just, um, yeah. and I'm, I'm a grown ass woman, right? So I can't even imagine um, uh, what that does for kids. I love this idea of finding the one you can tease early because it really does set the tone, doesn't it? To have that little bit of banter. Yeah, and because it confounds, well, it addresses so many kids' fears um, yeah. and confounds expectations for others. And especially like working with ninth graders or, or sixth graders, like kids come into school hoping that this year will be different. Mm -hmm. And they, they so often come like presenting their best selves, like knowing, okay, I'm going to do my homework this year. Or I'm going to not get in trouble or something like that. Yeah. But if school is the same as it's always been, then the burden is all on them to figure out how to show up differently when really it's not their fault. Really, it's that school is putting them in a box that um, uh, that just isn't fair. Right. And so I need to give them some sense of, no, this year is going to be different. Um, mm -hmm. And... I need to be my own full human self in front of them in order to ask them to, to bring the same over time. Mm -hmm. And because you are a natural introvert, it's risky for you to do some of these things, I, I would guess, but be, you know that you're the leader of your classroom and leaders go first. Yeah. So if you're going to ask our kids to take risks, then you've got to take risks personally and professionally as well. Well, we have to take risks in the classroom no matter what, right? This is another way in which kids hold up mirrors to us and force us to look at ourselves. Like if we're not willing to, I, I started this profession with all sorts of authority issues mm. that uh, <laughs> the class of 22 girls and one boy that I had the, <laughs> the first, <laughs> first year of teaching forced me to confront. Yeah. Um, because they weren't learning anything and I, I wasn't I wasn't teaching them anything and um, I didn't have room for uh, whatever internal debates I was having around what it means to be in charge of a classroom without being um, authoritarian in the classroom yeah. Yeah. yeah so I had to figure all that out and I didn't figure it out that year but it put it on my radar mm. and it mm. did involve a lot of risk taking a lot of it was learning so susan's idea of a lesson plan is find a good task and then ask questions mm. well that yeah. takes a lot of confidence in our ability to yes. to see what questions to ask that accomplish the academic goals and the socio-emotional goals of the task um and 
because I wanted to be Susan in as many ways as I could, as fast as I could. <laughs> I needed to work on that and figure all that out. And kids are the ones that taught me. Like my second or third year, um, I was testing this unit that had a big individual project at the end. And when I described it, uh, Melissa Baker said, nah. <laughs> and in, in my head, I said, yeah. But uh, sorry, out loud, I said, yeah. But in yeah. my head, I was saying, nah. <laughs> but they did. Um, and in fact, a few years later, after Melissa graduated, she came to visit one day and it was, she happened to come in this class that I really was struggling with. And I put her up in front and asked her to talk about the class. And that's what she talked about is being able to wow. feel, get, gaining the confidence to do things that were bigger than she thought she could do. Oh my God. That's just everything. It's everything. No, right? yeah. Oh my God. So I'm guessing based on uh, experience in this, with this particular question and folks yeah. like us who are a little more introverted that you probably don't have a walk-up song, <laughs> but I'm wondering, <laughs> um, I'm wondering if you have a song, like I think about when we go back to school in August, right? And that you're, you walk in your classroom in the first time and you're, you're, it's just like that moment. I wonder what, like, what's your song that you play that you just, it gets you in the right headspace. Do you have one? I do not. I have a strange relationship with music. I don't like anything conventional. I get bored of all sorts of things. And so I get uh -huh. bored of music. But I, because of that, I listen to some things intensely and then almost never again. Oh, and then I come back to it and it puts me in that, time or that place uh -huh, uh -huh. so i don't have one of those songs if i had to have a walk-up song i would like uh, put it to my kids monday morning and see what they come yeah. up with and yeah, demand yeah. that they pick something that will make me laugh <laughs> i love that i love that <laughs> and see what i get <laughs> so one of the things i miss most about um being at school is the copy room and that's why i created yeah. this podcast and i think about those mornings you know the buzz of a copy room is really special and exciting and so i wonder uh if we were all trying to get ready for a good day and you were going to be walking out to say goodbye to us what would you say to help us bring a little bit more love to our day well the, uh, those folks that are in the copy room trying to get ready, like, what are they doing? Right? Are they um, doing their things in silence, in, like in relative isolation, or what does it feel like in there? Mm. And the reason I want to know that is that it's one of the few times when we're in a room together without kids needing our attention or without us wanting to spend time with them. Um, so let's take advantage of that time to affirm um, our sense of community, our sense of shared enterprise, mm -hmm. our sense of humanity and connection. So I'm not just going to say good morning to the people around me. I'm going to like put a, a big smile on my face, like make eye contact with my, my colleagues, mm -hmm. um, offer to help if they seem stressed or rushed or I'm just waiting in line. I want to model patience if someone is hogging the copy machine. <laughs> I, I want to do whatever I can to communicate that we um, share a bond because we're doing something um, important. We're doing important work together and we have to do it as a community as a, and as a team. And mm. it has to be rooted in our shared humanity um, and our, our uh, the things that we have in common because we're all at that school together. Yeah, it's a real unique thing to be a part of a school community. I think it, it's um, it's a family in every sense of the word to me. And I almost get um, resentful if other people don't think that. 
I don't know if you, if you feel that way, but like if I'm in a staff where people don't feel the same way, I get kind of angry. And I don't know if that's fair, but that's how I feel. Yeah, I don't get angry, but I feel alienated and lost. And uh, so I was briefly at a school where there was just no conversation in the copy room. Mm. And, and, you know, it was a small, dirty, dank copy room, but wasn't a pleasant place to be and no one tried to make it any better. Um, mm. And I didn't understand, but it was, a, it was similar to, like this was a school where I felt like they loved the kids pretty hard, um, but didn't love each other. Mm. And I, I couldn't stay. Like it no. just, it didn't work for me. Mm-hmm. No, that wouldn't work for me either. Well, I'm so glad that we finally connected, and thank you for making the time for us. Um, I'm so oh, grateful you are here. I'm, I'm honored to be one of the people included. Thank you for uh, for doing the podcast, first of all, and let me hear all these wonderful voices, and for letting me be a part of it. Thank you for sharing your time with us in the copy room. Whether you're on your way to school, on your way home, walking your dog, or doing your household chores, I wish you a day of letting down and letting go. Remembering your birthright is to operate from a place of joy, even if your heart's broken. Perhaps especially when your heart's broken. Thank you to Dirt Path Publishing for producing this podcast, and to you for listening.